0: Black Moon Fiction presents Apatosis, or the Two-Headed Turtle Runs a Race, by Winnie Ka. Apatosis, the death of cells which occurs as a normal part of an organism's growth or development. The mind is a strange galaxy, thoughts, the comets threading into the dark, bright, dreadful. Below, inside the ocean are specks of light, glimmers, and flickers. I hooked a fish, stranded in breathless air, the water shining. Flat eyes look up at the expanding sky of powder gold rose. I wish. Curled on the couch, a 15-year-old skeleton clutching her bones, I weep. Mommy. Mommy. Daddy, help me. Please help me. I'm so weak. I have to use my grandfather's old walker to get around. I retreat to the back of my eyes and cry and cry. I am not a person. I am a little shriveled dying thing beating deep in the heart of someone I used to know. I am a crumpled paper cup treading in sewage water. I am a speck of space circumscribed by negation. Stripped of tensile jacket and undergarment pretensions, I am naked in my skin. I am in hiding somewhere and it is dark and chill and breathless. My earliest memory is of the first time I wanted to kill myself, I think. I was about four years old, I know, because I had not yet started kindergarten. I didn't understand death, but I knew dangers to be avoided as instructed by adults. Sharp objects, crossing the street by myself, running away from home, turning on the stove. I wanted to fold into myself until I disappeared. I was playing a child's hand game with my aunt, with whom I was living because my parents could not both work and care for me and my sister. The time I lived with her was the happiest period of my life. She was the most beautiful woman in the world, and I could do no wrong. Suddenly, she pushes me off her lap and says angrily that I had slapped her. I stare up at her from the ground, unable to understand what has happened. She glares and walks away. For the next four days she will not talk to me. My tiny universe diminishes into a pinprick. Very soon my aunt, perceiving my uncomprehending misery, relents. And then we are again the best of friends. Such a brief period four days out of the 26 years I've lived. But the little four-year-old me inside my heart won't leave the closed room built specifically for that memory. By locking her up, I lock her out. Soon after, I go back to live with my parents because I need to attend school. I don't know how to speak English. Come on, we've been talking for hours, my ears sweaty. I groan, carrying the huge 1990s phone around as my best friend on the other end strongly hints that she wants to keep going. I didn't realize until much later, when friends stopped calling, stopped wondering why I was absent for weeks at a time. That life was so good to me. I stare at the algebra test resting in my shaky hands. B minus I'm vaguely aware that my reaction is excessive, but I can't stop. My entire sense of self-worth is wrapped around academic achievement. I'm good at nothing else. If I'd actually failed, I can't imagine how my 7th grade self would have taken the news. The bell rings and the students file out of the room. I continue to sit, head bowed, at my desk. Jenny? Are you okay? The teacher asks, surprised to see me still there. Don't worry, I'm sure you'll do better next time. The next time, my eyes blur during the test as I quietly endure a degree of anxiety I didn't know was a panic attack. I get a C plus. Surrounded by classmates vibrant with chatter, a freshman in high school, I sit in a dreary stupor at my desk. There's an unreal quality to the scene playing in front of me. Actors cycling through dialogue, switching roles last minute, rehearsing for the performance. What's happened to the plot? Is there a story somewhere? The tall, balding man in the front of the room starts to speak. I struggle to listen. What he says is important, somehow. Sometimes I extract texture from conversations crumpled into abstraction. I can only pick out pieces. Is he telling me how to act? He's handing out papers. Is that my script? There are some words on the back of a quiz that's mostly blank in the answer sections. In my handwriting. Lying on my head, counting the ceiling bubbles and floor tiles, I want to rattle the stars everything shakes me. I'm drinking down a match consumed in fire and wondering when my lungs will start to burn. And I cough out scar tissue cracked clear through by the girl baby teething at my soul. The teacher gives me an odd glance as he passes. I flubbed my lines. Why are you sad? My mom wants to know. You're well provided for. You have food, a home, clothing. You have everything you need. I know I moan I don't know You lazy bum My mom scolds, tugging at the blankets i pulled over my head You haven't done the dishes or the laundry It's the afternoon and I haven't gotten out of bed I'm 17 years old You sleep too much I don't sleep all that much It's more like I don't wake up It's my dad who notices that something might be wrong with me. I trudge down the stairs the way I've done for the past few months, with unwashed, uncombed hair tied back, wearing yesterday's clothes, and wait by the door for my mom to take me to school. I'm near the last step when my dad looks at me for making breakfast. And then he stares. Daughter, are you okay? Yeah. Depression and bipolar were not known words in my vocabulary. And I was okay. I wasn't starving or being tortured, so life must be good. Except that I was so unhappy. I was what was wrong with my life. Are you sure? My dad had quite recently begun work as a psychiatrist, and once he noticed the symptoms, the signs were obvious to him. Yeah. You need to see a doctor and get an official medical diagnosis. I think you have major depression or bipolar disorder. I think you have major depression or bipolar disorder. He'd left for three years to live with his family because of constant fights with my mom, but came home every so often. I don't clearly recall if I realized this fact or if it even mattered. I called you. Why didn't you call me back? I demand. Anne says patiently. I'm in college now. I had classes. All day? I'm calling you back now. I missed you. I wanted to talk to you. Okay. What did you want to talk about? You don't understand. I thought about it at the time. I thought about it. You don't understand. I thought about it at the time. I thought about it. I'm trying, really. I can imagine Anne pacing in her bedroom. If she precisely transplanted her belongings from home to her apartment, she would have a closet of inconspicuous clothing, a mid-level HP laptop on the desk, some generic movies and TV show DVDs on the shelves, Harry Potter, Gilmore girls, card captor Sakura, pride and prejudice. She would be moving about in a space undefined by personality. I had hollered her out to fit me. I know, I'm sorry. I know I'm a burden. It's fine. Have you tried talking to the parents? Dad just keeps telling me to keep a regular schedule. Mom says I have a convenient illness. Help me, I whimper. Please help me. Anne doesn't say anything. She can't because there is never a right answer. I've missed my older sister, now married, for the last five years or so. On the occasions that I visit her, I want to ask her if I can be tucked away into a dress shirt pocket. Not the little fake ones decorating the back of ladies' jean pants. Then I could be near her heart for a little while, even if she later throws me into the washer with the other dirty laundry. Sometimes I forget that holding me up has left her hands sodden with my footprints. Paintings meant to brighten the room's bleak white atmosphere hang on the walls. But none of us smile or aroused from our stupor. There is a large table. Around it sit men with dragging shoulders, women with sagging breasts, all with drooping faces. Don't let the illness take over you. It's temporary," says the group leader, a smiling middle-aged, heavy, overweight white man who has recently lost over a hundred pounds. You can win. He continues to everyone, all of whom are over 40 except for myself at 20, and have suffered from bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, major depression, manic episodes, and more for the entirety of their lives. A Middle Eastern man visibly disappears into a seat and mutters, I'm losing. I can't think about anything else besides ending everything. Don't, the group leader urges. You have so much to live for. What about family and friends? They'll miss you terribly. He looks around. What do you guys think? I raise my hand. I might blow off my face instead of blowing out my brains. I confess. I don't know how to use a gun at all. You might shoot a neighbor, too, if you use a gun. A Hispanic woman comments. I slump in the plastic-backed chair and reply with a wry smile. Then I'd have no face and no neighbor. Most of us are without jobs, on government support, alienated by former friends and family who, exhausted from perpetual caretaking, have distanced themselves. Several could not drive themselves to the meeting and depended on free medical rights. At 20 years old, I am terrified to see in them what I will become. Despairing, lonely, alive for now, but not living. I'm so afraid of what I'm not. God loves you. You should pray to him. My parents look at me expectantly. I'm talking to air. Empty. Empty! I scream and run around the house when they press me to believe. Jenny, my mom says. The neighbors will think we're murdering you. I hide my face in my hands and shrink back. You're wearing plastic masks. Why are you wearing plastic masks? I stare, listless and obese at five feet and no inches, at my current psychiatrist, another in a long line of experts. She beams at me, says... Jenny, I'm so proud of you. You're doing much better than our last meeting. The muscles in my mouth feel paralyzed in a frown, but I try to smile. I've been trying to eat healthier, I mumble. Thanks for your diet suggestions. How do you think you've been? I don't know. Kind of sad. Mostly nothing. I don't do much. But I don't know what I'm not doing. My stare becomes fixed. I am wandering in the mist again. She leans forward. I'm sorry this is so hard for you. You know, sometimes I lay awake at night thinking, God, I hope Jenny hasn't killed herself. Something blinks hard in my chest, clearing the heaviness a little. And the tears start. I sleep with the light on. Even so, the monster under the bed creeps into my chest and breathes terror vapors into my dreams. There's a man on horseback shooting at cabbages placed atop poles. Odd targets, I think, as he expertly maneuvers his horse around to take aim again. Suddenly, I am the man, and the new perspective allows me to see that the cabbages are cut in perfect halves, exposing the innards and neatly ensconced inside are the severed heads of men and women, faces immobilized in rictus. The man, no, I, make the next shot. I claw my way through water and at last break the surface of consciousness. I open my eyes to dust motes imprisoned in sunlight. At 17, I was a very young candidate for electroconvulsive therapy, ECT, a procedure which involves a medically induced seizure with the intent to alleviate the symptoms of severe depression. I underwent this procedure 21 times. One of the major side effects is memory loss. I recall little of this period in my life and my sister informs me that after each treatment, I'd come out of the room a seeming lobotomy patient, vacant-eyed and slacked mouth. I was less burdened, yes, but as a consequence of ECT, wondered in eternal sunshine of the spotless mind. My sister and I stand in front of the mirror brushing our teeth. I see her reflection and mine, but I don't recognize either. I don't know who you are. I say to Anne, who has taken care of me my whole life, who's been more of a mother than a sibling. We are biologically related, but... who are you to me? Am I someone to you? We've had this conversation before. Dozens of times, in the same way, the same order, the same story. Says Anne. I don't remember forgetting... I repeated entire phases I'd gone through, watched the same movies, read the same books, and was taken aback that I would have underlined and marked the same passages, asked the same questions about what had happened to me. Like a little kid just learning her letters, I wanted my parents and sister to help me learn the alphabet, making up in some the words explaining who I was. The world in which I lived, I tired them terribly, exhausted their capacity to love me. I was 20 years old and had regressed to childhood without any longer possessing the charms of a child. I drew the blueprints of my personality all over again, had the slow, slow realization that I was reconstructing myself in erasure some months after my last ect session i'm better and pacing in my living room finally feeling pretty in a sparkling pink dress i had invited myself to high school prom with a boy who shrugged and said yes we say nothing to each other the entire time do nothing but sit at a table watching people giggle and dance awkwardly in the shared limousine he and another girl strike up a conversation that lasts the ride back to his car I take out a leftover napkin from the banquet and fumble around until I find a pen rolling around on the floor. Then I approach the girl. As he drops me off, he tells me, Jenny, I don't want to sound like a slut. I smile and say, Why should you? We're not dating. But I enjoy talking to that girl for half an hour more than the evening I spent with you. I smile more widely and hand him the napkin with her number scribbled on it. I know. I say goodnight and go back inside the house before taking off my sparkly pink prom dress and hanging it in the closet. After doing that, I lie down in bed, tears trickling down my face, and more of me crumbles away. I go to sleep with dingy eyes and dream that I touch my lips to the sun's surface. When I wake up, my heart feels burnt. I am 22 and huddled on the couch watching as growing shadows scrawl dark graffiti on the walls. Anne stirs from beside me and gets to her feet. I'm going to a friend's party this evening. I shift and pluck at her arm. You are? But but I don't feel good. I feel bad. I know. You said that. So how can you go? I ask, voice rising shrill. Because I was invited by a friend. Because I want to. Anne tells me, releasing my fingers from their hold. I don't know who I am. What I like, what I'm interested in. She looks toward the partially open door. Our mom likes to open the door when the weather is nice, to let the air in. What do you mean? Do you know? Because I really don't. I want to find out. Don't leave me. Please, don't leave me. I have to. For myself. I have things I want for myself. A life. I thought you cared about me. My eyes dart around in a kind of imploring frenzy and then focus with freakish intensity on my sister. Anne hesitates at the threshold between the gray house she is leaving and the world that is waiting for her to enter. You have to learn to be a person sometime, by yourself. The door shuts. I am alone in this dark, windowless room I built in my childhood and never completely left. When something is broken, it can be fixed. Rust has corroded the core of who I was. I am decaying within, and there is nothing for it but to throw me away. Apotosis, or The Two-Headed Turtle Runs the Race, was written by Winnie Kaw. Winnie Kaw graduated University of Wisconsin-Eau Claire with an English MA, Concentration in Creative Writing. Her creative work is featured in Bards and Sages Quarterly, Pilcrow and Dagger, Fiction on the Web, The Singularity, The Philadelphia Review, and Kung Fu Theatre Podcast. In addition, she was an associate editor at Pleiades Review and a book reviewer for Santa Fe Writers Project. American Microbook Reviews, Necessary Fiction, The Philadelphia Review, Fjord Review, and Ostrovia Poetry. Amy Weaver is a writer, actor, and voiceover artist living in Los Angeles. If you liked what you heard here, please head over to iTunes and leave a review for Brick Moon Fiction. It helps us find a bigger audience, and we will see you next week with a brand new story. Enjoy.